So what is CIS's position on network neutrality? Or what is CIS's position on tariff regulation? Or some policy question like that. And the answer to that question is always the same. Uh, CIS is like the Kama Sutra. We don't have one position. We are a collection of many positions. So welcome to Outliers. This is a podcast with Outliers. And, uh, you know, there are some outliers that are really, really outliers. I've been meaning to sit down with uh, Sunil Abraham of <coughs> Center for Internet and Society for a while now. Uh, a lot of you would have heard of what Sunil does, uh, talks, advocates, fights, the battles that he's been fighting. Uh, I've always thought you as an outlier, Sunil, because a lot of things that became f- fashionable uh, two years ago or something, as a journalist, I have found you to be talking about those topics, for example, around privacy uh, for a really long time, much before they became fashionable battles to fight. So I really believe you are an outlier for that. and. From whatever I have watched as a bystander, your own journey as an entrepreneur fighting for some of the battles that you pick, it's also fascinating. I always thought we talk of startups and the flip-flops and ups and downs they go through. So I thought there's a a lot to learn from in terms of balancing, I don't know if it's ideology, it's it's your belief and and surviving. So a lot of these. So welcome to the podcast, Sunil. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start from where you come from. (laughs) So who are you? And uh, give us a sense of uh, where did you grow up? Why are you doing what you are doing today? Like, are there seeds uh, that were sown (laughs) back uh, then that we we don't know about? So, So give us a sense of where you come from. Uh, So I come from Bangalore, that is perhaps uh, the most accurate way of describing me. I've spent all my 45 years living out of one city in the south of India. Uh, So in many ways, Bangalore's uh, metropolitan uh, and cosmopolitan attitude uh, informs me and who I am, uh, and some of the Uh, foundational values that we seek to protect at CIS. Uh, I was trained an industrial and production engineer and for those who are unfamiliar with that particular branch of engineering, it is what you might call applied laziness. So when an industrial and production engineer is watching Charlie Chaplin in the film Modern Times, working on the assembly line, then the question that we try to solve is how can Charlie Chaplin do exactly the same operation with one hand rather than two hands? So we try and save effort and resources for firms. But as you know, Bangalore does not have many assembly line factories. And when I graduated with my degree, I was finding it very difficult uh, to get a job. Uh, my father at that point of time was on his deathbed, so it was imperative for me to get a job. <coughs> I approached 
people from the voluntary sector, because my father worked in the voluntary sector, and I started to ask for a job, and I met uh, the founder of an integrated rural development non-profit called Samuha. The gentleman's name was T. Pradeep, and the question he asked me is, have you heard of the internet? And I said, uh, yes. He said, uh, do you know how to use it? And I said, no. He said, if you're willing to learn, I'll give you a job. And that was my first job at the computer department of this NGO called Samuha. And uh, later, uh, my boss asked me to spin out the computer department as a separate social enterprise. <coughs> and that was the first organization that I founded in 1997 called Mahiti. Mahiti still exists today. Uh, and about 60 engineers build open source technology both for civil society and also for small and medium businesses across the world. But the reason why I do what I do is a story that predates my graduation from engineering school. In the second year of engineering, my father asked me what I would like. Uh, the choice was, I think, between a television set and uh, a computer at home. And I s chose a computer, and my first computer was a 386. And like any student in a Bangalore engineering school, I had to support my alcohol habit. So I started to uh, do desktop publishing with a friend of mine who was a graphic designer. During that time, a contract came uh, to us, and this was a data entry contract, and that seemed like easy money compared to the effort involved in graphic design. And we were feeding in what looked like a big address <coughs> database. On the first day and the second day, we fed all the data in, and we got paid, no questions asked. I grew a bit suspicious because how can uh, engineering student make absolutely no mistakes. So on the third day, I introduced some mistakes uh, on purpose to monitor whether they are auditing the work that I was doing. And on the third day also I got paid uh, absolutely fine. Uh, no questions asked. So from the fourth day onwards, uh, my friend and I we were typing Bhavish. Uh it was only much later that I realized that what we were doing was the data entry for the EPIC uh, or election ID card. And uh, the reason we were doing it is because of the way uh, the e-governance intervention had been designed, where people would outsource and outsource and further outsource and so on. Uh, we have seen exactly that same mistake repeated in the other enrollment exercise, where people outsourced work and outsourced work, and this serial outsourcing to more and more unaccountable people has resulted in a lack of quality and undermining of the web of trust, and now all those outsourced firms have been shut down and the enrollment has been moved back into banks, <coughs> which again, I don't think we can trust. So therefore, when technological systems are introduced into societies, then it's very important 
for us to configure the disincentives and the incentives and the checks and balances between different actors in the ecosystem properly. If you just think that it is a technical problem or it's a legal problem or it's a social problem, if you look at it purely from one discipline, then usually you'll make a mess of your interventions. So that's why I do what I do. <laughs> yeah. A very enlightening answer. <laughs> I now know more about you <laughs> to start with. Uh, how did uh, Center for Internet and Society uh, happen? And, uh, and, and why again? So, uh, with uh, Mahiti, uh, which is the first organization that I founded in 1997, I did not want to found this organization. Uh, it was forced upon me. Some social entrepreneurs have entrepreneurship forced upon them. They don't choose to become entrepreneurs. T. Pradeep decided what the name of the organization should be, Mahiti, what we should do, serve the nonprofit sector with free software, and also <clears throat> give us the initial investment. And in the year uh, 2008, in the early months of the year 2008, exactly the same thing happened again. There was an internet in, uh, there was an Indian internet billionaire. His name was Anurag Dixit. He made his billions by running an online gaming portal called PartyPoker.com. He was very keen, for personal reasons, to create something similar to the Berkman Center at Harvard Law School in India. So the full name of the Berkman Center, which is now called the Berkman-Klein Center for Internet and Society, uh, is exactly our name. Uh, it's perhaps the first center for internet and society uh, in the world. So Anurag Dixit uh, went there and met Lawrence Lessig and uh, gave him a check for a million dollars saying, please set up a similar center in India. Lawrence Lessig took that check and passed it on to a friend of mine, uh, Lawrence Liang. And Lawrence Liang passed the check on to me saying that he wouldn't be able to do it but uh, here is Sunil, and here are three other people who will work with Sunil, Nishant Shah, Pranesh Prakash, and Nirmita Narsiman, and they will do uh, this project, which has established the Center for Internet and Society in Bangalore. So at that time, there were two serious problems with me as a candidate to leave this center. The first is, I had not done research before, uh, the second is my specialization so far was free software with some stretch of imagination, maybe copyright law and intellectual property law reform. So I didn't know anything about privacy, free speech, cybersecurity, accessibility of the disabled, telecom policy, all of this I was completely <laughs> ignorant of. So I went back to Anurag Dixit and I said, how about we make this the center for free software? And then I can confidently run it. He said, no, you give the check back. Either you, have to, either you do the whole thing, you do everything 
uh, that the Buckman Center does, uh, or uh, you don't get the check. So this reminded me of my first uh, e-commerce project uh, during my early Mahiti days, when I used to go around and meet entrepreneurs. This was the dot-com boom. Uh, and tell them that I could make e-commerce shopping carts for them, uh, while in reality I didn't know how to do so. So I would sell in the morning and learn in the night, and uh, <laughs> that's how we, I built the first shopping cart application. So it's a, it, it really was a similar opportunity for me, except here the learning would be less technical, uh, more from the perspective of method, <coughs> and so on. So, uh, 10 years later, uh, I think we made a reasonable success of that project. So, it's also a very unique entrepreneurial journey in terms of the kind of organizations such as, you know, that, that you built and, and you are, you know, building. Because, so, so how do you set agendas for your organization, the, the issues that you care for? And then how does how do you keep the balance with those issues that you topics that you care for with the required funding that goes in in that right i'm asking that question because even as journalists that it's a question that gets asked you know when it comes to us right i mean in this age of polarization right so no matter what you do there's always a question about okay so who's backing you in your case it would be even uh, you know more difficult, I would imagine, because the agendas that you pick, the battles that you fight, how do you ensure the balance? How do you ensure uh, funding? I, I don't know if I'm asking the right question, but I, I... The answer to your question is little easier if the institution answering the question is a research organization. It's much more harder if the institution is either a for-profit or if it is an advocacy organization. Because at a for-profit, you have to take a party line. You have to say, my product is the best product, or my service is the best service. And at an advocacy organization, uh, for example, Internet Freedom Foundation, again, you have to take a party line. You have to say, <coughs> network neutrality at all costs. Uh, there can be no compromise. At a research organization, you have a privilege which both these other types of organizations don't have, and that privilege is you can have a diversity of views, uh, you can have pluralism, and pluralism is one of our uh, founding principles. So very often people come up to me and they say, so what is CIS's position on network neutrality? Or what is CIS's position on tariff regulation, or some policy question like that. And the answer to that question is always the same. Uh, CIS is like the Kama Sutra. We don't have one position. We are a collection of many positions. So that is uh, the feature of research organizations, that you can have a diversity of voices. Now, the unfortunate consequence of that is we could have an agent uh, a spy, perhaps, uh, from Microsoft or from Qualcomm. And the <laughs> Qualcomm spy could enter our organization and then produce research, 
which results in the maximization of shareholder value. Now that's not an evil thing by itself, because that is how the private sector works. But maximization of shareholder value through a very tight uh, patent regime, very maximalist patent regime, that's not good for the stakeholders that CIS represents. Similarly, somebody from Microsoft could come into our organization and publish reports that say that all government uh, systems should work on Microsoft's proprietary software. That could be acceptable if we accept any form of diversity. But again, that does not work for the Center for Internet and Society. So we have a constraint on the diversity. So you can say whatever you want about any policy topic, as long as you perform academically rigorous research, but either your conclusion or question has to promote human rights, and uh, which covers a full species uh, on this planet. If you're unable to protect human rights, then a subset of those humans are citizens within a national boundary. Therefore, they have citizens' rights. So you have to defend the rights of citizens. And a subset of those citizens may have money, and they may use their money to buy products and services, and therefore they are consumers, and they might have consumer rights. So therefore, your research somehow has to defend consumer rights. But unfortunately, as you pointed out earlier, you cannot be simplistic about your analysis or your prescriptions. Because a simplistic analysis of copyright law, for instance, today, might re lead somebody to conclude that to protect human rights, to protect the rights of citizens and consumers, we should dismantle the copyright regime completely. It's only, after all, 500 years old. So we just dismantle it. And uh, all humans will have access to the sum of all uh, human knowledge. Uh, but what we are really doing is, without having a historical perspective, we are rolling back uh, four or five centuries of incentive mechanisms that exists for creative people, like artists and authors and performers and so on. And if we have no alternative incentive mechanisms in place, then we, in the long term, we undermine the public interest. So if you undermine the public interest, you simultaneously undermine human rights, citizens' rights, and consumer rights. So therefore, in many cases, we are looking at what engineers call an optimization problem. There are competing imperatives, uh, and we protect some of those imperatives more naturally. But at the same time, making sure that the telecom industry, for instance, has sufficient profit so that competition remains in that industry may also be a goal that you have to achieve, apart from narrowly protecting the rights of humans, consumers, and citizens. <clears throat> yeah. You also had a very re recent near-death experience. Yes. And I, I think they, there will be some great learnings in there. Yes. Uh, so what happened and, 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 and what's happening now? Can you take us through 
the journey or or or, or the lessons learned there uh, the trouble with a lot of research in the area that we work on is that the research itself is made illegal through laws uh, that govern that area of work for example child pornography uh, it's illegal for any entity in india to search for or store store child pornography <coughs> therefore you cannot do research on child pornography because it's a prohibited area uh, cyber security is another area where in most jurisdictions uh, there are laws that prevent researchers from doing research on those uh, questions uh, last year we published a report that basically said that four government transparency portals have illegally published 130 million other numbers and 100 million of those other numbers come with full bank details in our uh, estimation we felt that if cyber criminals managed to harvest the fingerprints of that 100 million people then they could get into their bank accounts using pos machines and therefore we um asked those four government websites to take uh, the information down and then we published uh, the report uh unfortunately the uidai uh was upset by this report and they sent us uh, three legal notices and uh, that resulted in the donors uh, backing off because the donors did not want to be or some of our donors did not want to be in an antagonistic relationship with uh, this government uh so i think the first lesson is that the risk appetite of a research organization is directly proportionate to the risk appetite of its donors uh the second is if we had large scale uh support from individual donors then we could be uh, that then we could have a greater risk appetite the third is really that research like this in the future uh like firms we must take advantage of regulatory arbitrage if the research in the future happens outside the jurisdiction then it's impossible for somebody within the jurisdiction to clamp down on on the research uh and perhaps uh the fourth learning is that like in the US where after the death of Aaron Schwartz who is who was a friend of mine uh uh laws have been proposed uh to give exceptions to security researchers we need those similar laws uh, in india because more and more as our lives depend on technologies we need to be able to audit those technologies 100% to know that we will be safe both as individuals and as uh, societies i think they have fair lessons yeah <coughs> you mentioned aaron schwartz yes uh, the danger is sometimes uh, and in this case especially uh such personalities uh, get buried right uh, how how do you keep uh, those battles or or or, or 
those figures alive or relevant in the generations to come not a philosophical question the reason i'm asking that is because of course he stood for something which clearly is something that you also believe in now i hope that that's a issue a larger issue for everyone right so how do you keep so for example arun chaudhary itself how how do you keep his battle alive uh, i'm not the best person to answer that question because our theory of change <clears throat> is a slightly different uh, theory of change uh, an advocacy organization or a campaigning organization is usually more concerned with cults of personality and ensuring that cults of personality are a way through which large scale uh, norm shifting can happen in society uh, my theory of change at the center for internet and society is institutional theory of change and here uh, we don't uh, claim to change the world because we have access because we know wealthy entrepreneurs or we know judges or bureaucrats or uh, politicians so usually uh, we never encounter any of these types of people uh, unless they invite us to the room we never get to meet people like this all all we do is we produce research and uh the research is considered useful by multiple stakeholders and then the research informs what they say and do uh the gold standard for us was when the supreme court in the putaswami judgment cited our research three times so that's our theory of change but the other theory of change is equally important and worthy of study even though we don't practice that theory of change ourselves uh what people like aaron schwartz do is they engage in frame shifting and frame shifting is a very important way in which transformations happen in modern societies the best example of frame shifting is from the pirate party in sweden so the pirate party was a group of activists who believed that intellectual property laws were unjust and that there were user rights uh fair use rights fair dealing rights and those rights had to be protected if they had launched in sweden as an ngo nobody would have heard of them they were very smart uh tactically they said we are a political party and the moment they said we are a political party that made front page news in pakistan because for the first time pirates had a political party so it's a frame shift they took a institutional vehicle that the average person like me may not think is the appropriate vehicle for this type of activity it has resulted in huge success and uh, uh, now in many european countries there are parliamentarians and uh, local Uh, elected officials that come from the pirate party so it's become a bit of a movement erin schultz did something very similar and again the parallel with the pirate party is a form of civil disobedience 
that will later get sanctified by law and will become a legal activity in, uh, under, under the legal regime. So Aaron Schwartz uh, published what was called the Guerrilla Open Access Manifesto. So till that point in time, the frame was, there are proprietary journal articles and there is the open access movement. Open access movement is where the authors or the publishers voluntarily license their material under an open license. But Aaron Short said that's too slow, that's not going to solve the uh, knowledge deficit across the world. We need all the old material. So he wrote a scraper and illegally installed it in the MIT server room and that's why he got into trouble. So the, the guerrilla open access manifesto is doing almost the same thing that the pirates are doing. And what it does is it makes you proud of infringing unjust copyright law. And every time you sit in a theater and you see the rights holders make some propaganda uh, advertisement about being a pirate, because pirates, the term pirate has been reclaimed by the movement, it only fuels the movement. So from now on, every time uh, they use the word pirate to demonize a copyright infringer, the copyright infringer is actually feeling very proud that they are a pirate. <laughs> uh, and that's what uh, Aaron Schwartz did. He gave new life uh, to the open access movement, but unfortunately uh, got into trouble with cybersecurity law, and uh, that's why he, he unfortunately lost him as a leader in the movement. So as researchers, this is what we study. We try and look at different parts uh, of contemporary life where people are frame shifting because if people successfully frame shift then many things change magically. And, and Sunil, other thing is India as a country because of its scale, complexity and so on, a lot of these topics or issues uh, manifest uh, at a scale that has never been before. Yes. So which basically means their impact or yes. you know adverse impact or, or good, bad and ugly would also be at a certain scale. Yes. So you know sometimes when uh, organizations like yours or voices such as yours are having arguments or debates on Twitter and elsewhere, it comes across as a very elitist intellectual debate. But when it, in fact it has a mainstream effect. So do you see this disconnect at, at times at all, because uh, the stakes are high, very clearly. But do, do uh, you know, I mean, man, the, man on the street care, or, or how, how do you ensure this translation? Uh, so that is a deep uh, methodological question. And uh, what you realize is that many of the questions that we are trying to answer at CIS cannot be answered using classical scientific methods because we are not studying natural phenomena, we are studying social phenomena. We cannot assure replicability in the experiment. So then you come to the next question which is, suppose I am interviewing somebody or suppose I am observing somebody, then is it uh, worthy uh, research methodology and again we find that it's very difficult 
to get the truth through interviews and observation. Suppose I'm observing you use a computer, you most probably won't go to the websites that you usually go to. Suppose I ask you how big your pornography collection is on your laptop, you're not going to give me an honest answer. So there are a whole set of important questions where interviews and observation also will not result in the right answer. The uh, third method you might try to uh, adopt is the big data approach, which is in philosophy of science called the method of induction. That is somehow previous behavior is going to determine future behavior. If the CIDR has been safe so far, then perhaps it will be safe uh, indefinitely in the future. But this is also uh, completely flawed because if you ask uh, Bertrand Russell or if you ask Nicholas Nassim Taleb, they will all tell you that the black swan events cannot be predicted through methods of induction. Then the temptation is if I go around India and ask everybody about privacy, if I had big budgets like that which allowed me to do this, then the law around privacy in India should be based on what the average person in India feels about privacy. Again, there are two problems with that type of approach because um, most smokers will have one thing to say about smoking uh, as long as they're cancer-free and the moment they're diagnosed with cancer, immediately their opinion on that question uh, uh, ch ch changes uh, significantly. Um, so, 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 and, and also the majority opinion shouldn't matter uh, because in a nation state, even if one individual feels that their rights have been infringed and if it can be proven that their rights are infringed, then the rights of the minority also are important in a democracy. So it's not just a majority opinion versus... So you come to a place when, for many of the interesting questions, all these standard research methodologies fail us. And therefore, you have to push yourself even further. And sometimes it is a research method that might seem dubious to observers. For example, uh, will the CIDR be breached? That can be answered by giving a series of fictitious scenarios that might occur. Yeah? And that could be how the CIDR is breached. And a good engineer will protect against all those fictitious scenarios and make them technically impossible. So really, our research method is making stuff up. At one level, our research method is so divorced from empirical reality that we could be just making stuff up, but still, if that is considered a worthy policy input, it will be accepted. And therefore, our track record is how good have we been in a prophetic role? Were we able to predict that this will become a problem? Were we able to say much in advance that you should watch out for this or you should design for that? And like an investor in the stock market, uh, through years of experience is able to explain retrospectively why their analysis is right. Uh, the researchers in the policy world also 
play a similar prophetic role, which is we use a range of data points, but then we combine it to make observations about what will happen and what won't happen. The, com the last layer of complexity is that usually as a society, we politically agree on the ways ahead. So it, it doesn't, sometimes policy prescriptions are not the right policy prescription because um, there is a scientific basis for it or there is a research basis for it. Sometimes it is the right policy prescription just because that is the political compromise that multiple parties have negotiated. And therefore, what we see ourselves doing is providing knowledge in that discussion where the political compromise is being negotiated. So it doesn't really matter that we don't have the huge budgets to do the grassroots research because sometimes a single conversation with a single person about a single experience is sufficient to give us the insight about some big change that will happen. For example, I'll make a prediction now. Suppose the Indian government were to prohibit uh, pornography by blocking it at our international gateways. This is a policy move by the Indian government. My prediction is that uh, overnight it will become the biggest capacity building exercise for Indians where millions of Indians will start learning to use circumvention software, anti-censorship software. So, so this is, why am I able to make this, prescript, uh, this prediction? Not because I interviewed people and I had this from the ground, but this is because I've been following human interaction and societal interaction with technology for years now, and therefore I can make these predictions. <laughs> <laughs> Great insight for anyone <laughs> trying to do research. <clears throat> I mean, more finally, uh, how do you handle criticism or critique uh, in, in your career? I mean, I would imagine everything that we are discussing <laughs> yes. will have strong criticism. Yes. How, how do you personally and even as an organization manage criticism? So, uh, as I said earlier, our organization is founded on the Kama Sutra principle and that means that within my team also people are encouraged to disagree with me. If uh, all of us agree, then we have less outputs. I'll have only one blog entry because everybody on the team is in complete agreement with me. If fortunately one or two people disagree with me, then we will have two outputs and the debate will start on our website itself. But uh, most seriously, the uh, foundation of all modern research is uh, on the foundations of the philosophy of science. And that is that no matter what the statement it is, it is always temporarily held as a truth. So even the evolution theory, even though there is a lot of proof uh, which helps us believe that the theory of evolution actually happened historically, is an accurate account of historical events, it is still theory. And theory means it is always testable, and theory means it is always revisable, and that's the modern human condition. So you should always be grateful for criticism, uh, no matter where the criticism comes from. 
because you always learn uh, from criticism. Even when it is ad hominem criticism, you are able to tell how the optics of what you're saying and who is funding you is affecting the credibility of your research conclusions. Uh, so uh, dealing with <coughs> criticism is perhaps what keeps us intellectually alive. If we stopped being criticized, uh, then the work is over. So on network neutrality, for instance, my organization took a very unorthodox position and for that we were roundly criticized. People said that we have sold out to the private sector. But this is because uh, increasingly we are bringing a new uh, approach to regulation in India. We believe that regulation must fully take into account systems theory. Our world is composed of multiple systems. Within these systems, there are subsystems. Ideally, regulatory fixes should fix processes within subsystems. You shouldn't have regulations that are in the classic command and control hierarchical mode, where somebody on the top <coughs> decides what is good behavior for everybody else. Ideally, you need self-correcting mechanisms in the subsystem. So we thought, don't have a prohibition on free basics, allow free basics to continue, but every time the user consumes any bandwidth on the free basics application, they get twice that bandwidth of general internet data. So that means they're always free of the walled garden and the disincentive for Facebook is built into the mechanism itself. It's also dynamic regulation because if you feel that they should get three times that data or four times that data or half that data, all of that can be fixed uh, by, by, by the regulator. Uh, I'll tell you a small story of uh, visiting a law school and uh, at the law school when the competition was going on and students were presenting academic papers to each other the students were incapable of uh, staying awake. They would uh, go to sleep. So there were ushers in all the four aisles waking up the students. And once the students were woken up, they were unable to stay quiet. They would start chatting to their neighbor. So then the same ushers would come and shush the students. So uh, the problem which we have is a regulatory problem. We want to regulate the behavior of students. And the method we are trying to use has zero expectation of self-regulation. And therefore, we have a command and control system of both prefects and teachers waking up students and shushing them. Uh, so how would we solve this given what we know about modern regulation? We could have a gamified solution. For example, you have a, count, a randomizer right up in front and at various points in the event, the randomizer picks a random student number and the student is supposed to come up to the stage and summarize the discussion from the last time the randomizer called upon a student. And if the student is unable to do that, the student uh, waits on the stage till the end of the program. So uh, it, it's not a serious punitive measure. It's a measure that embarrasses uh, the student. 
But basically, without having ushers, without having the prefects, without having the patrolling in the aisles, you can be sure that the students, uh, at least those who care about their image, will pay attention uh, to, to what's, what's going on. So it's a self-correcting system which doesn't even need you to uh, call the principal or have a student uh, uh, rusticated. So this is the question that we face in all areas of regulation. In all areas of regulation, the old top-down mechanisms, command and control mechanisms are failing and uh, we need to reinvent uh, the way we regulate uh, these activities. These new proposals are bound to be controversial because students have never had a mechanism like this where a machine is making sure that they're paying attention, the randomizer is making sure they're paying attention. So therefore there will be complaints and, and that's why I say that the business of and criticism and that, that's, that's why I'm saying the business of research is finally a political project because it doesn't matter if your policy solution is the scientifically accurate solution, if the people around the table representing different stakeholders are unwilling to accept your solution, then it's a meaningless solution. So in that way also, making sure that we are aware of the ideology of various actors and that we address their ideological concerns either explicitly, uh, BJP also supports free software, CPIM also supports free software. Or implicitly, we remove unnecessary ideology in our solution. We don't reference uh, Marx five times in the policy prescription because that will mean that somebody who doesn't believe in Marx will not accept. Uh, so, the, so uh, criticism is uh, integral part of doing what we do. If we didn't have the criticism, we would produce really rubbish research. <laughs> 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 Great <laughs> insights for anyone who wants to make a career in research. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think in, in partially it, it applies to uh, the journalism that we also know, like what it, at least it used to be and at least something that we follow. Thank you, Sunil, for Thanks. your time. Thanks I so really much for enjoyed having... this. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>